So tonight we're going to talk about hermeneutics. That sounds fun. Um, it's a it's a it's an it's a word that's uh, you don't really use at parties or any, anywhere really. Um, hermen, hermeneutics means interpretation. Okay, so we're going to learn about interpretation. How many of you guys saw the press conference with Kathy Lee? Not Kathy Lee. Kathy Griffin, I believe her name is. Yeah. Everybody knows she had the the Trump head that she held up. Now I. I don't want to talk about politics, um, but I do want it. I, I thought it was really funny at her press conference because she said, "You know, the meaning of my the meaning of my expression." Hey, how's it going? You're okay. Come on in. The meaning of what I'm doing can be interpreted any way you want to. So, and she was offended that that people were interpreting it in a bad way. She said, you know, one woman saw, saw my artwork and said, that shows that, that women still have power. Okay? I guess that's one way to interpret it. So the question in our culture, and, and sometimes even in us, that can, this can seep into us, is where, where is meaning? Is there true, real meaning anywhere? Or does meaning reside in the interpreter, the person that's looking at the artwork and saying, wow, that's... Uh, yeah, Donald Trump's head. That that means uh, that inspires me to be jealous. I don't know. There's there's no wh where is it? So the reason she got in trouble was because there was meaning to her art, wasn't there? There was a it was a, it was a dark uh, message that was uh, it was very impactful to uh, to people. So um, we I want to talk about that, but that's going to be kind of underneath what we're going to talk about as far as reading the Bible. But we're, we're battling, in, or we're sort of swimming in this water that is uh, it's shifting. It's kind of shifting sands in, in the sense that we are living in this postmodern context where meaning is questioned, okay? Uh, interpretation is something that's, that's, that's changed a little bit. So um, you're going to hear me kind of bring that up and talk about philosophy a little bit. Um, but I don't, I want to kind of stay at the pace that you guys feel comfortable with, but I don't know you. So help me understand you by just speaking up, asking questions, interaction. I'm, I'd love to interact. Um, if, if you look at it this way, I, this class I've kind of condensed down into four weeks. So I'm going to go through and just hop from iceberg to iceberg. If you want to go underneath the water, you have to ask a question, and I'll, and I'll go there. You Help. said it was hermeneutics? Hermeneutics, yeah. And that was meaning meaning by interpretation? Uh, interpretation. Just means interpretation. It means interpretation. Mm -hmm. Study of interpretation. So uh, hermeneutics, um, the, the big thing with hermeneutics is it's very important as we interpret the Bible to understand certain terms, okay, that, that I'm going to use. Uh, Jared mentioned this earlier. When we, when we come to the Bible, sometimes it's just very difficult to understand what exactly is happening, right? And, I take, and you think, man, I don't want to do all this research just to, I just want to read a devotion or something, you know? Uh, I want to get something from the Bible today. Um, and so it's important as we go through to think about, um, I'm going to, again, these are difficult, weird terms, but I hope this helps explain a little bit about how someone can approach a text, okay? So when someone's reading the Bible, and they come to the Bible, and they have something that they want. Maybe they want an answer uh, about a relationship. Maybe they want um, 
they want some direction. And so they just, maybe they even open it up to like a random section, you know, and they just say, you know, like, okay, I'm going to read this and, okay, Psalm 90 verse 1, you are my dwelling place. Lord, you are my, I need to change my dwelling place. That's what I need to do. That's literally what I opened up to. I need to change where I live, and then the relationship will come, or then that big decision will be clear if I just change my dwelling place, right? So there's different ways that we approach Scripture. I know eisegesis is one way where we come and we, 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 in, we put meaning into the text, okay? So when we read the Bible, eisegesis is it's bad, it is putting meaning into the text, okay? Exegesis is getting meaning out of the text, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand the meaning in the text before we understand it for ourselves or in our world or in our culture, okay? And then there's something called proof texting, which is taking a bunch of verses and sort of using them to prove a point. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will do this. Mormons will do this door to door. They'll do a lot of proof texting. They'll take verses out of their context. Context is very important. Um, They'll take verses out of their context and make a point based on a, a random swath of verses that you you don't know where they're from in Scripture. So exegesis, exegesis and proof texting. Um, this hairstyle hasn't come back in yet, but this is uh, this is Rene Descartes. Now, before Rene Descartes, uh, all the way up till the Reformation time, 1500, 1600, that era. Um, Man was man viewed himself as um, God's creation, and that God was the center of the universe, and he was trying to find meaning out here. Okay, so we have this wave of science, of exploration, of all kinds of stuff in the name of God, because man man saw God as the center of the universe, and and not man. Okay, but Rene Descartes changed that. Rene Descartes was a Christian. But he was a philosopher in the age of reason, and he sat down in a chair, and does anybody know what he said? I think therefore I am. Yeah, I think therefore I am. And you might not ever hear that, or might not ever think that's important, but it was critical. It was, a, it was the hinge of history, really, for hermeneutics especially, because what, what began with I, I think therefore I am, meaning I exist because I'm thinking about existence, now, now that's the starting point. So man became the center of meaning. And out here, we, we could find meaning, but we already had it with, uh, with mankind. Okay? It was in, inside man. That was the only thing that we could be certain about was mankind. God was something out there to find or to discover if he was even real. So this, you know, obviously philosophically we can go to Nietzsche with, you know what? God's dead. God's, God's not only not the center of the universe, but he's dead. He's out here. That, that was one thing that could happen from that philosophical view. Well, it, it started to change hermeneutics because we start to look at different um, scripture, different pieces of scripture uh, differently. Okay, so pre-Descartes, beginning with God and man tried to understand the universe. I hate this word, per, purpose. I can't even say it. Purposeuity. Purposeuity. Everybody know? Does it, do you guys know what purposeuity means? It means clarity. Okay. Somebody say it. 
perspective? Um, no, it's not perspective. It's the word perspicuity. Isn't that great? Pers <laughs> perspicuity. Perspicuity, yeah. So the before the Reformation, um, there was a, a view of Scripture that it was not clear. Okay, It was non-perspicuitous. That a person, a normal person, could not understand or interpret Scripture. And so we, need, we needed priests who studied Latin and the original languages to be able to communicate what God was saying to the masses. Okay, so this is before the Reformation. Okay, before Descartes. Now, the, the good thing about the Reformation was uh, Martin Luther said, no, it's, it's very perspicuous. It's very clear. It's transparent, the Bible is. And so he translated the Bible into German. Okay? After Descartes, man began with self and attempted to find his place in the universe. We also have the, the transparent nature of the Bible change. And so every, everyone had a Bible suddenly. This is one of the, the history over the next hundred years, a lot of cults started. A lot of people misinterpreted the Bible and started to form different religions. All because of bad interpretation. So let's go back to the Bible. What is the Bible? Well, let me, let me stop there. Any, any questions so far? Are you guys tracking or is this... Can okay. you say perspicuity again? <laughs> I hate saying that word. I was trying to say it on the way up here on the car drive, and I still can't say it. Okay. Um, so the Bible contains 66 different books. The Bible was written by different authors over, uh, sorry, that should be 2,000 years, uh, 3,000 years from, from us, but the New Testament was finished a couple thousand years ago. The Old Testament points, okay, it's a simple way to think about the Bible. The Old Testament points to Christ, points forward to Christ, speaks about Christ, presents a frame to understand the, the Messiah. The New Testament talks about Jesus in the Gospels, present day, and in the letters, looks back and reflects on Jesus. Okay? Um, again, simple way to look at the Bible. Uh, what does the Bible say about itself? First, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Um, I love this idea of you guys doing this habit of trying to get into the habit of reading scripture and taking it in. Uh, I guarantee it's going to change your life. The experience that you have with your Bible and with God as you read the Bible consistently, it'll, it'll change your life. It's amazing. Uh, Jesus in Luke 4 uh, gives an example of battling Satan. He's battling Satan. And what does Satan do? He twists scripture and misinterprets it and tries to get Jesus to do things. And then Jesus responds with what? With more scripture, right? That's correctly interpreted. Okay, and he's going through Deuteronomy. He's, he's responding with these um, these verses from Deuteronomy. So Jesus shows us the nature of the Bible, the importance of uh, the Bible, some interpretive issues that we face when we read the Bible. How do we know what we're reading? How how do we understand 
this stuff. We, we live in a different time, don't we? There's a historical distance. There's 2,000 years between us and, and these men who wrote the Bible, right? They're not even like us. How, how, how do we understand the things that they're saying? It's in a different language. There's, you know, so many words for love in the Greek language. How, how, are we going to misread our Bible or misunderstand our Bible because we can't, we can't read the Greek? We have cultural differences. Uh, like I explained earlier, a battle for meaning. Um, most of the, um, the world lives in a culture that is very similar to the biblical culture, but here in the West, it's very different. We have a highly individualistic culture instead of a group culture. We don't live in, in sort of shame, honor society um, like most of the world does, like the biblical culture was. So we have that problem. Uh, the contextual gap is just the understanding of what, what context is this person writing and what context are we in? And how are those two things different? And how do we understand the Bible in light of that? There's also different translations of the Bible. I'm not sure you can see that. It's really small. Zoom in, maybe. There we go. Hi. Um, so as I zoom in here, this is, uh, now that I look at it, not really helpful. Um, but it's a, uh, it's sort of a spectrum of the translations of Bibles and how to understand why, why we need these different translations. Um, what does a what does a word for word translation mean? One word of Greek, the best word in English. Yeah. So word for word, the best word in Greek to the best word in English. Now, what, why would that be a problem? Where where would we run into problems? There's a bunch of different words for love in Greek, and there's only one in English. Yeah. So the meaning is. So we're reading about brotherly love, and we've just got to put love. We're reading about sexual love, and we've just got to put love. Right? So there's some problems there. Um, but still really good, right? Now, what about a, a thought-for-thought uh, translation, like the message? How many of you guys have the message? Okay, I do. I love reading the message. Um, what's thought-for-thought? Thought? What's that mean? Summary. Yeah, so try, trying to summarize what's being said. Now, in both of those instances, what are is there any interpretation involved? There is, isn't there? So we need to be careful when we're reading the Bible that we don't we understand that this there is a, a translation gap in some ways. We can understand our Bible and we can know it, and we need to work at it. But we need to understand the way things are translated sometimes. Um, I think it's always helpful to have a paraphrase Bible and a word-for-word -word Bible. Um, I, sometimes when I'm reading a word-for-word -word Bible, um, mine is the ESV, um, I tend, it, it tends to get a little choppy some, or, or hard to understand as I'm reading it. I'm kind of going, what is he saying here? And I'll go to the message to kind of understand the thought flow. Okay. So, um, I, but I don't look at the message, this paraphrase edition, and, and like find a word in the message and, and take it out and go, man, I gotta figure out what that word is, right? 
because that's not really what he's trying to do with the message, okay? Um, genre is also really important. Genre is the type of literature. Um, how, many, how many of you guys know what genre is? Genre, okay. So genre is the type of literature, right? If I, uh, if I was to say to you, the tigers killed the panthers, what would I, there's different things I could be saying based on what genre we're talking about, right? If I'm talking about sports, that's one genre. If I'm talking about maybe news about the zoo, <laughs> the tigers killed the panthers. When we read the paper, the newspaper, we read it, or, or even online, when we're reading different websites, we read them differently, right? TMZ versus the New York Times, I just read differently. Credibility-wise, whatever. Okay, there's, I don't read TMZ, I just, you know what else to say. I'm trying to get something that's like, really not very credible. Um, but something like that where we, we are reading, we read different things differently. That's what genre is. Genre is a specific type of literature that we're reading, okay? So we read it differently. Um, and this, this is very important in the Bible, right? Why would this be important in the Bible? Can someone think of why? Like I think, how literally should I take this? It's, it's poetry, maybe not so literally. If it's narrative, historical, then maybe I should take it, you know, so. Yeah, good, okay. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not going to go to the Proverbs maybe for, and, and understand a proverb as a command, right? I'm gonna read it differently. A proverb's like a saying. Uh, the early bird gets the worm, right? It's a proverb in our culture. Does the early bird get the worm every single time? No. So if the Bible set has a proverb in it and it doesn't happen, is the proverb untrue? No, it's just a proverb. Raise up a child in the way they should go, and they will not depart from it. Uh, I'm a family pastor at my church, and I have a ton of families that come to me and say, I did it. I raised them in the way that they should go. I usually at that point don't tell them that they're just not interpreting the Bible correctly. Um, but that's what's happening, right? I, you know, gave the child the way they should go, and... God told me they wouldn't depart from it. It's not a promise. Okay, It's a proverb. In general, you train a child in the way they should go, they'll, they'll defer back to it. They'll, they'll go back to it when life gets uh, crazy. Okay? Okay, any questions so far on that? All right. So God's word is written to us through uh, other people. Sorry language and cultural context. God's word is written through them to us. God's word culturally is closer to most of the world in the West. I already explained that. But it's important to understand that God's word is written by other people, through other people to us. Did God, when God was right, when, when people were writing scripture and the Holy Spirit was inspiring them, did God have you in mind as they as they were writing. Maybe we'll try. We'll explore that. Um, 
when Paul was writing a letter to the Philippians, did did Paul have you in mind as he was writing? Probably not. Probably not. So how can we read these letters and and expect expect them to be divine? Expect them to be if just some someone was writing to somebody else and that has no meaning to us, really. But the Bible goes beyond that, right? We know that it's inspired, that it's God-breathed. Uh, we, we trust that part of it. So God's Word is written through them to us. So how do we begin to interpret? When we begin to read the Bible, we start with the text itself, and then we start to move out and try to understand the context. Uh, context just means the place where we find the text and what the surrounding circumstances were that provided us with this text. So why is Paul writing a church in Philippi? What's he trying to, what points is he trying to make? After that, we move into the paragraph. Well, what paragraph is this verse in? What book is it in? What is it in the New Testament or the Old Testament? What's its context within the Bible, within the whole Bible? See, we want to understand the bigger picture of this tiny verse. Because what happens is when we take out this verse out of context, and we start to use it however we want to, it, it kind of becomes meaningless. Meaning now resides in me, and I give it meaning, and then you can start a cult. Okay? It's not, not a good idea. <laughs> And then the context within other ancient writings. So you come across a word or a phrase, and you try to understand it um, in that context. Uh, one of the verses that I see pulled used out of context most often is this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I am locked in a 7-Eleven bathroom. Hey, what's up? You can see about this. Um, I'm locked in a 7-Eleven bathroom. But thankfully I can get out because God gives me this verse. I can do all things. <laughs> um, I went to a, um, went to a Christian uh, bookstore and they had these verses on uh, athletic statues. Mm -hmm. So statues, have you seen that? Yeah, so a, a little guy's kicking a soccer ball and says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> or a guy's throwing a pass, you know, he's going back for a pass. Um, now, this isn't to, um, the no knowledge of this isn't to sort of like be arrogant about it and shame people into like, hey, you're an idiot. Um, but what we want to do is understand what, what is Paul, what was Paul saying when he said that? Uh, what, was he, what, what was the point he was trying to make? And is it the same point that we're trying to make when we use it on a soccer statue? Or we use it in the 7-Eleven bathroom? Luckily, I got out. <laughs> if you look at Philippians, let's turn it over to Philippians. And... I want to look at uh, this verse, Philippians 4.13. Okay, can someone read it out for me? 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Okay, thank you. So some have given uh, to him, Paul, some have given to Paul uh, in his jail time, and they've also sent him someone. Um, but now we want to look at, okay, what, what is the context of this verse? What, what is he talking about? Uh, in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So remember, when we're thinking about context, we're almost looking at like the diamond in the ring. What, what's the context of the diamond? What is it that's, that we understand after reading that? That Christ can get us through anything. As far as like, like mentally, not necessarily like miraculously, physically. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so Christ can get us through anything. Um, and part of it's a mental thing. Like we understand something about Christ foundationally that no matter what happens, Christ will not go away. We always have Christ. Yeah. So, um, how does that change? Will you say something? Oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> it doesn't mean that in any situation I have the strength to produce the outcome I desire. It means that in any situation, I have the, the strength to follow Christ in that, or serve Christ in that situation, despite of my despite my situation. Great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, I've got money sometimes. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm broke. But that doesn't change who. That doesn't change the fundamental gift that I've received in Christ. The fact that I am, I am with Christ. That strength, that inner strength, that no matter what happens to me, I'll be beat down, but I won't, I won't be done. Right? That I can't go away. Because Christ is with me. And that's why I can endure all things. It's probably better translated to say, endure. I can endure all things. What's Paul enduring as he writes this letter? What's the, the broader context of this letter? He's in jail. He's in jail, yeah. So he's writing from jail. Um, this is the uh, leader of the Christian movement, really. Lead church planner. And they've captured him and put him in jail. Thanks, God. Thanks, God, for allowing that to happen. That's going to help us out. Um, but we get his letter. And now we understand this verse in light of that context as well. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can even endure prison. I can start to share the joy I have with Roman soldiers because even in this Roman prison, which was not a fun prison to be in, it was a hole. Even in this Roman prison, I can have joy. I can sing hymns. Because deep down inside, even though I'm beaten down, I'm not done because Christ won't let me be done. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we want to understand the bigger picture. Um, I, ha I have a short video, but um, I don't... How much, how much time do I have? Um, I would say 
25 minutes. 25 additional minutes. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, let me show this tour video then. It's about five minutes. Y'all, these are the videos that are going to help us through our read through scripture, by the way. Yeah. Oh, it's the same ones. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there, Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism. But their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution, but they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. 
which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1 through 3, and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the king of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus, and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul, and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven, which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. 
Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his greatest teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. Okay, so now how, do, how does that shed light on, on understanding uh, verse... Four, or, I'm sorry, verse 13, chapter 4. It gives us some more context, right? What, what do we understand now about this verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Add, add to it or, or help me understand it based on what you just saw. And I mean, encouragement to those who are struggling with being persecuted and are struggling with trying to pass on the message and helping others to come or to understand why they are following Jesus. It's an encouraging message paired yeah. with his story being in jail. Great point, yeah, great point. Because they might lose, uh, lose hope, right? They might not want to endure. Um, they might not want to uh, speak about Jesus and be put in jail, lose their possessions, lose their family. Um, so this is a, a plea or an encouragement to them. Um, yeah, what else? Might be referencing kind of Paul's past and what he comes from and, and speaking to like the, the things that he did killing Christians in his past and pointing to like, uh, I know what it is to be brought high and brought low and, and in an honor-shame culture, like being able to be healed of that shameful past. As like uh, one of those things. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, there could be some inner uh, stuff coming out here from from him, from his past. Um, but but there's this sense that nothing nothing is going to rattle him ultimately. That he has this strength in him to endure anything that happens, and the Philippian believers do too, because Christ Himself is strengthening him. It's amazing. Well, let me let me go through this. Is there any any questions so far? Is we uh, or any thoughts as I get to where we were? The I think therefore I am, dude. Yeah. What does his Christian faith? Does it have anything to do with that philosophy? Does it? Are you saying that it's like a good or bad thing, or helpful or not helpful, or? just a Western way of thinking or? Okay, yeah, yeah, good question. Um, well, he was a Christian, but he was also a rationalist. So rationalism uh, means reason, right? And during this time, reason was um, kind of going above or, or uh, rising above um, what things we couldn't understand. So naturalism started to grow. 
So anything that was real had to be tasted, touched, smell. But how can we really know things? And so it's an epistemological question. How can we really understand and know things? And he was a Christian, and he doubted sometimes, like we all do. Hey, is this really real? You know? And so he sat down in the chair, and he said, what do I know for sure? What do I know? They started there. He started, I'm, I'm going to pretend like everything is unreal. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm in a dream, right? Like, maybe this is all a dream, and I'm not even really here. But I, but I do know that I'm thinking, and I'm thinking about thinking. So I'm going to start with that. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to find God through that, through that doorway. Now, the problem is, with that, when that doorway opened philosophically, there was a lot of other people that came through the door that were not Christians, that developed philosophies that we now live in, okay? So while Descartes was a Christian and trying to find his way to God, um, it opened the door for others who would change, really, culture and history. Um, it's it's kind of sad. But interpretively, it comes into play because now... When we come to a text, we tend to think, what, what does this mean to me? Instead of, what is it, where's the meaning? The meaning's in the text. And we need, to, we need to find it, okay? It's exegesis. Ex means out. Ex communicates someone. Exegesis means out of the text. That's what we want to do, not eisegesis, where I, I come to the text with my meaning. And, uh, you know, Kathy Griffin, uh, you know, Trump's head does not have a lot of different meanings. Mm-hmm. A lot of different interpretations. The reason that she was shut down or shunned is because there's one very clear meaning to someone's head being held up that's bloody. There's one clear meaning to that. It's not open to interpretation. Now, someone might have different views, like, oh, that empowers women because Trump is a woman hater. Let's just say that that, that might be true, but that's not a totally different interpretation of the meaning, okay? So we want to grasp the, how does the context of the book help us understand the specific verse? We kind of already went through that. Um, these videos are really helpful. I'm glad you guys are going to be using them. So I wanted to uh, finish with another passage in Luke. Now, we're going from a letter, which is a certain genre, so this has a specific purpose, a little bit easier to read, to now a narrative, a story in Luke 6. Uh, Luke 6, 45, and I'm going to read all the way down to uh, 49, okay? So the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house, and he could not shake it. It could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Probably a very familiar passage for most of you guys. Um, the second part of verse 45, though, it 
that says something very significant there. Out of the abundance of the heart, what? Mm-hmm. The mouth speaks. So out of the abundance of our, so our, our hearts have the, the ability to, to store information, let's say, okay? We store things in our hearts. And how do we do that? We do that by thinking about things. We do that by dwelling on things, by taking in things. Okay, so if we are binge watching a Netflix show, you know, we start to feel like, um, uh, what's his name? Kevin Spacey. Frank Underwood. Yeah, Frank Underwood. <laughs> we start to feel like Mr. Underwood, deceptive. Or we, can, we can start to, whatever our hearts are longing for, whether it's money, whatever's in, whatever that is, it's going to come out in our mouth. It's going to come out in our speech. You can kind of tell that with people, right? You know what they're about pretty quickly when they start talking and, and you spend time with them, right? But he says something really interesting. He kind of warns us as uh, believers. Um, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he says this phrase as well. And he says, um, you know, depart from me. I never knew you. And these people say, no, we, we were following you. And these people in this context, they are following him. He's talking to his disciples, the people that are following him. But he's, he's sort of taking a warning shot and saying, don't call me Lord, Lord with your mouth. Don't, don't use your mouth, but show me, show me your heart by, by doing what I say. Show me that the abundance of your heart is outflowing and, and, it's, and it's turning into things that I do. What, the, person on, the person that built the house on the sand, what, what did he say that they did? They heard the word, right? Mm-hmm. They heard the word. And there's a danger in hearing, as you interpret, hearing the word and maybe, maybe understanding something and maybe feeling good about understanding something new and then walking away from the Bible and not doing it. And this is the warning shot for Jesus. This is, hey, pay attention to this. If you're not following what I say and doing the word, you're not a part of me. You're not, you're not participating with me. And that's scary, right? That should be scary. That should wake us up a little bit. Say, whoa, okay, I'm taking in a lot of Bible information, but what am I doing with it? How, how is this changing my life? Because that's the person that builds their house on the rock, right? The person that, what, hears my words and does them. In 47, this is what he is like. He's like a person that builds his house on the rock. He not only takes in the information, but he does it. Ever, do you ever feel good about like a message? Or, mm-hmm. You ever feel good about feeling convicted about something, <laughs> but then you don't change it? Or do you ever think about God's word and think, this would be really good for someone else? Mm-hmm. My, I wish my roommate was here hearing You know, whatever. We don't think about ourselves and how we need to respond to God's word. And that, that's the message here is when we, when we interpret God's word, we want to be really careful to do what he says. Now, what is this, this passage that we read tonight? I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. How do we walk out of here different as believers? How does it help us walk out of here different? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a student. I can't help it. I have to raise my hand. Um, to, you know, look into the context of scripture and not just single line verses from the internet or from our memory 
Yeah. Good. Okay. I, I think having a partner mindset of, um, especially when thinking that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that that's about um, an endurance and a faithfulness, um, that, that Christ is faithful to us and our participation in that, as opposed to um, getting things. I think that a lot of times that verse is interpreted very materialistically. Um, and so I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know that I'll be a successful actor because Christ strengthens me. And that's not what that verse is saying. You know, like that's taking it completely out of context. So I think, at least for me, having the attitude of um, there's a partnership in that endurance. Good. Yeah. Anybody else? I think just understanding that how we approach the word, because even the example you use about like training up a child in the way that you should go, I've found myself thinking like, well, how is that, how does that fit with reality and good parents who raise terrible kids and, and there's no guarantees and how things are going to turn out. And, uh, but re like realizing and that I, I'm coming to that with like, and I think I often unknowingly approach scripture with like, what is, what do I get out of this? And like, raise up a child in the way that you should go. It's like I get a promise that if I do my part, you have to do your part. When that's not what that and God will do His part. Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah, because it's a proverb, just a proverb, not a promise, not a command. Yeah. Um, and so next time we can say something. Yeah, just, that's good. It, and that ties into the Philippians thing because it's it's not Paul getting what he wants because he has to be content of not having anything. And yeah, so I, I kind of pull from that. It's like from that Philippians verse. It's like so much bigger than oh, I can bench press 400 pounds because Christ strengthens me. It's like, no, Paul's talking about life and death and the gospel. And, right. and it's like, so to whittle it down to something that, well, I would just like to be able to do this, then um, that's, yeah, completely missing Paul's point. So next week I'd like to talk about some hard, difficult passages and some difficult books um, and what I, what I hope to do over the next few weeks here is to kind of just make you more confident in approaching some of these books or some of these areas of scripture that might be difficult. Um, how do we interpret them? How do we, what do we do when we don't fully understand a passage? First uh, Peter um, about Jesus going down and preaching to um, people in prison from Noah's time. I don't know. There's lots of views on it, but no one really knows for sure. Okay, so those types of sections and how do we approach that, okay, as believers. So I'll see you next week. Thanks.